I also want to encourage you to uh, make sure you get your Christmas banquet tickets. Uh, as Luke was saying, that helps us to, uh, to engage our community as well as to give you an opportunity to, to enjoy your Christmas season. And if you're anything like me, Christmas is sneaking up on you. So it's, it's really coming quick. Uh, so don't delay too long. I've been caught a couple of times with procrastinating, and all of a sudden the date is upon us. So don't be like me. Get that in advance. Well, it's certainly good to be back. Nadine and I were off for about a week, just on a short fall vacation. And when I came back and started preparing for today, it dawned upon me that this is week 11 of 12 in this sermon series we've been going through. That's a lot of weeks, and I was really shocked that this is 11, and then the Next week is 12, and then we're finished. Now, not only does that mean that we're finished the series, but that actually means, again, Christmas is sneaking up on us. That's the start of Advent season happening in just two Sundays. So it's coming. And uh, today we're going to talk about one disciple who I think some people have been looking forward to, and others weren't quite sure where we're going to go with it. We're going to talk about Judas Iscariot today. Uh, now, Judas, that's a name that has become synonymous with a person who sells out their friend for personal gain. And when you hear the word Judas, and we already know what story immediately comes back to your mind, and perhaps it's, it's a difficult story for you because you maybe have your own story where there is a, a Judas, if you will, in your own life. Perhaps you've experienced a season of betrayal where somebody turned their back on you. Perhaps it's somebody who lives in Edmonton here but cheers for Calgary. Like, where do you go? Or we, we'll... we'll, we'll Pick on the riders next week. Oh, no, we won't. They, they won't be winning today, so they'll be out. So we can save that for... <laughs> we'll see. The dangerous thing about talking about sports teams is that next week I'm going to stand up here again, and we'll see who wins and who loses, and then you guys get to come right back at me. But perhaps you have a friend who lives in Edmonton, but cheers for Calgary, and that's a struggle for you. But this is a common narrative that exists within real lives for us, so much so that it finds its way into movie plots as well. Think about all the movies where you find traitors in them. I thought about a couple. There's, there's James Bond films, right, where you have these double agents. Works for one side, and then, and then they, they flip sides, and they use the information they initially got to go against their original team. Movies like Star Wars, where Lando Carizian betrays his friends to Darth Vader, or, or Anakin Skywalker betrays the Jedis in, in all of the galaxy. A movie like Gladiator, where Maximus is betrayed by his second-in-command, Quintus. I'm sure there's romance movies that have betrayal, too. I just, I just don't watch movies like that. As you can tell, I'm into more action and sci-fi. But I'm sure there's romance movies that have betrayal in them as well. That goes with the narratives. But it's, it's a, something that's familiar to a lot of us. It's betrayal shows up in real life, and it shows up in fiction. And we've all had experience, to some degree, with betrayal that has left scars upon our lives. And so there's no question that the most poignant event that happened in the life of Judas was that betrayal of Jesus Christ. Now, we're not told how this whole story started. We're not told how Jesus and Judas first initially met. What we do know, though, is that Judas was the only one of the 12 disciples who was a non-Judean. Now, the name Iscariot actually means man from Kerioth. And we also know that Judas didn't just sort of scheme and weasel his way onto the team, that he was handpicked by Jesus after a night of prayer Jesus chose Judas to be on the team. Judas was discipled for the full three plus years along with all the other disciples. We know that Jesus loved him and served him. Judas was sent out with the others to go and preach and to teach, to, to heal, to have power over evil spirits. We know that Judas had a respectable position amongst the 12 because he was named the treasurer. And 
We also found out later he was stealing from the money bag, but they wouldn't have put him in that position if they had known that initially. You see, he had, a res- he had, he had respect amongst the other disciples that they would move him into a role such as that. But after all of this, he agrees to sell out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver and betrays him with a kiss. Over these years, he had heard the gospel message. He had seen the miracles of Jesus, but he had never received Jesus for himself. Like, like Ryan was teaching us last week, the seed had been sown, but in Judas's case, that seed fell upon hard-packed ground and never took root. See, Jesus was a, full, Judas was a full-fledged disciple, hand-picked and selected by Jesus Christ with access and opportunity the same as all the others. He has a fitting place at the table at the Last Supper. And, for example, if you've seen da Vinci's famous painting, The Last Supper, he belongs at the table. He was hand-picked after a night of prayer, given the opportunities and discipled and brought along the same as all the others. But in some versions of this painting... There's a change that happens on Judas. There are some versions of this painting where he is the only disciple at the table who is shown to not have a halo. Because in the end, the seed didn't take root. And this lack of halo signifies his falling away and his turning his back upon Jesus Christ and his brothers. And so his story ends with deep regret, with death, and no happy ending that continues on in infamy. But here's one curious thing I've always found curious about this, the, this story. See, Judas was not the only one to betray Jesus that evening. Like before the night was over, all of the disciples would have abandoned him, and, and Peter in particular would outright deny him. And yet it's Judas that goes down in history as a scoundrel. Where Peter and the others go on to a place of honor. So when we compare these two guys, both of them blew it. Both of them felt a deep sense of remorse and sorrow for what they had done. But one of them has remorse that leads to death. And the other one has remorse that leads to repentance. And you see, that's the difference between these two stories. That's the difference that makes all the change in the end. Now, if you pause to think about a time in your life, perhaps when you've experienced betrayal, you'll understand between these two things. If you stop and think about a time when somebody had turned their back on you or somebody had been a traitor in your life, you'll know the distinction. Because that person's actions left a deep wound upon your heart. And if they then come back to you and try and downplay or try to excuse their actions with with words like, you know, I'm sorry you got hurt. I'm sorry you had to be collateral damage in all of this. Or if they come back and, and try and justify or minimize and say, you know, if you could see things from my perspective, you'd cut me some slack. When the response of a betrayer is along those lines, you see nothing more than remorse. You see nothing more than remorse as they keep ownership at an arm's length from themselves. They might be experiencing shame. They might be experiencing guilt and disappointment with how things turned out. But there's no sense of a change within them. And so whether we're talking about our relationship with other people, or if we're talking about our relationship with God, simply feeling bad falls short of a proper response. Because remorse is a feeling in your heart. Remorse is a feeling of the heart, where repentance is a change of heart. And that's the incredible distinction between this. Remorse is a feeling in your heart, while repentance is a change of heart. Now, in the book of Matthew, I I don't think it's an accident we find the accounts of Peter's betrayal and Judas' betrayal listed back to back. 
And so today as we look at these two contrasting failures, I think we'll come to see the critical distinction between just feeling bad about how things work out due to our actions, the distinction between that and the need we all have for repentance. So I'll give you a moment if you have your Bibles with you, if your phone's with you, you can turn to Matthew chapter 26. We'll be starting in verse 69. And as you go there and find that passage, I'll remind you that both of these accounts take place on the evening in which Jesus was arrested. This is prior to his impending crucifixion, where earlier that evening, as all the disciples are gathered in the upper room enjoying their last supper together, Jesus makes two troubling announcements to them. First of all, Jesus announces that one of them is going to betray him. And then very shortly after that, it's identified as Judas, and Judas leaves the room. But then Jesus also says that all of them are going to fall away that night. Now, Peter refuses to believe this, and, and he refuses to say that he would fall away to the point where he even says, Jesus, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. But then as we find in Matthew 26, verse 69, we see how that actually plays out. We see how that actually plays out in the end, where it's at a point in the story where most of the disciples have already fled at the arrest of Jesus, but, but Peter and and one or two others actually follow him to the courtyard of the high priest where Jesus is being questioned and the trial has already started. And Peter walks up to a a fire to warm himself in the cool of the evening and a servant girl walks by. And she says directly to him, she goes, you were with Jesus, weren't you? Now, Peter doesn't outright deny her charge, but he kind of evades the question by saying, "I, I don't know what you're talking about. And so he dismisses her, and she continues on her way, but, but he knows he's not in the clear yet because he's starting to feel a bit of a threat to his safety. And so he leaves the warmth of the fire, and he kind of slinks back to the cold of the entryway of the courtyard where it's a little darker, a little colder. And now another servant person walks up to him and, and says a lot louder, kind of addressing whoever's with an earshot to say, hey, this fellow was with Jesus. And as the threat to his security increases, so too does his denial. As he responds, I swear to God, I don't know this man. And about an hour later, as people have heard this and seen it going on, they've been talking amongst themselves, some of the bystanders and some of those who were gathered around the fire, they now come up to Peter. And they address him. They say, surely you're one of them. Come on, give up the facade. Your accent completely gives you away. And so this time, for the third denial, Peter calls down curses upon himself if he's lying. He says, if I'm lying, I'm dying. I swear I don't know this man. And just then the rooster crows. And Jesus turns and locks eyes with Peter. And in that moment, Peter remembers the words spoken earlier that night. And it descends upon him. And his heart sinks. And he runs out of the courtyard and we're told that he weeps bitterly over what has just transpired. Well, immediately on the heels of this story, Matthew now points us towards Judas' betrayal, where he can pick up the story right there in verse, in chapter 27. And at this point in the narrative, Jesus' execution has been planned. He's been bound and he's been taken away. And the reality of Judas' actions are starting to descend upon him. In verse 3, we're told that he is seized with remorse. And so he goes back to the chief priests and the elders who he had schemed with initially, and he tries to return the money to them. And in distress, he says to them, guys, I I have sinned. I have betrayed innocent blood. And he's looking to them to either share in his pain or to somehow release him from it. But instead of giving some sense of relief, they just callously reply, 
Well, what is that to us? That's your responsibility. You made your bed, now you go lie in it. And finding no comfort, finding no companionship, completely riddled with with remorse, he throws the blood money on the floor of the temple and he runs outside to the point of remorse that he kills himself. He hangs himself out of his remorse. Now, I think Matthew is very careful here to record Judas's feelings of remorse and his attempt to reject the money he had been given, but also carefully to give us a clear sense of the magnitude without giving us a sense of repentance on Judas's part. Because remorse is that feeling in your heart, but repentance is that change of heart that we just don't see in Judas's life. So when we feel remorse, we may admit we were wrong. We may admit that what we did was wrong and it injured somebody. We may even make a vow to never do it again. But there's no fundamental change to the way that we think, to our allegiances. Because that thinking would then have an effect upon our heart, which would then have an effect upon what we do. And so we can now look to the continuation of Peter's story. And see what that might look like. That change of thinking that leads to a change of heart, that leads to a change of action. We might be able to see that in the conclusion of Peter's story. Now we've got to jump over to John chapter 21 for this one. It's the last little jump and then we're going to camp down for a little bit and look at these two narratives. But in John chapter 21, this is after the death of Jesus Christ. And, and Peter and some of the other disciples, they, they're not sure what to do with themselves. They decide they're going to go back to what they know best. And they, they go back to fishing. That's their roots, that's their career, that's the life they're heading back towards. And they've been out fishing all night, and it's the end of the night, and it's been unsuccessful, and they're starting to head back to shore, and they're about 100 yards off from the shore, and they see somebody standing on the water's edge. And that person says to them, says, how was the fishing, guys? And they announce that it was, it was terrible. He goes, well, try throwing your net on the other side of the boat. Now, I'm sure they initially thought, well, that's ridiculous. There's not left-handed and right-handed fish out there. Like, fish just swim or fish swim. Like, why would I go from the left to the right? It's not going to make a difference. But for whatever reason, they do it. Maybe it's out of desperation. Maybe they know that if they get to shore without any fish, there's no breakfast. And so they give it a shot. And they drop the nets. And instantly, the net is so full that they struggle to pull the nets back into the boat. And as, as, they're, as they're pulling and hauling these nets back in, Peter's thinking to himself, this is familiar. This reminds me of that one time a couple years back when, when I first met Jesus and, and suddenly it's starting to descend upon him when John declares, it's him, it's Jesus. And Peter is struck with his realization that Jesus is standing on the shore and there's this burden, there is this pit in his stomach that just draws him and says, I need to get to Jesus. And so he just bails. He jumps out of the boat and swims to shore to go to Jesus. And by the time the others arrive at shore, there's already a fire going. And they're ready for the fish, and they have breakfast together. But the whole time they're eating, there's this elephant in the room. Because there's something that needs to be addressed. And so Jesus finally looks at Peter and addresses him with that full formal name, like your mom uses when she really wants to get your attention, ensures that she has it. Mark Allen Dixon, are you paying attention to me? Right? My middle name's Allen. This is Peter's restoration. This is his restoration. Where Jesus looks at him and says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? More than these? More, more, than, more than what? More, more, than, more than these fish? 
more than the boats, more than your career, more, more than these other followers who are gathered around, more than your very life. And to all of these and more, Peter replies, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus asked him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And again, Peter responds, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. A third time, to parallel the three denials. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now, Peter's a little hurt by this time. Three questions, three answers. What does Jesus not believe? What what does he not understand? And so he just emphatically declares, Lord, you know all things. You know my heart. You know the sorrow, the remorse that I feel. You know the truth of my confession. You know that I swore I didn't know you, but if I could take that back in a second, I would. You know all things, Lord. You know that I love you. This wasn't about rituals. It wasn't about some magical incantation where three wrongs minus three rights equal a clean slate. That that wasn't what it was about. It was about the fact that Peter had blown it. And then when he saw Jesus, he had to get to him. He had to run to him, or literally in this case, he had to swim to him to seek forgiveness, to acknowledge the fact that not only had he caused pain by the things he had done that was wrong, but that he needed to get right. And he could only do that in the presence of Jesus Christ. You see, at first glance, there's a difference between these stories that may seem subtle, but the outcomes are so profoundly different because Judas expresses this remorse in his heart. But Peter demonstrates a change of heart that leads to two very different outcomes. Now, in Paul's second letter to the church in Corinthians, he perfectly summarizes it this way when he says this. He says, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See, Judas had demonstrated worldly sorrow. He had only really demonstrated remorse over what had happened. He was seeking relief from those bad feelings that plagued him. He felt the guilt. He he felt the regret. And that takes him back to his co-conspirators, the religious leaders. And and perhaps he wants them to share in the guilt with him. Because misery loves company. Is say, hey guys, we're all in this together, right? If we share the guilt equally among us, I get some relief. Maybe he went back to them because he wanted to blame them. Hey, you guys took advantage of me. You guys tricked me. It's not my fault. Or maybe he went back to them because he wanted to be absolved. You guys, you need to say something. You need to do something so that I know I'm going to be all right. But salvation nor forgiveness are found through remorse or through ritual alone. You see, these things of the world will falsely promise freedom, but they deliver slavery. They falsely promise enjoyment, but they just bring guilt, happiness, but you end up with sorrow. Because under our own efforts, all that ever happens with these worldly systems and the worldly wisdom of ourselves or by others is we find ourselves on this treadmill of sin, guilt, confess. Sin, guilt, confess. Sin, guilt, confess. And it just repeats and we never find the freedom. Because God does not simply ask us to grieve the consequences of our sin, but he asks us to actually hate the evil of the sin itself which is a change of heart in regards to our actions. And this shows up in our lives in a variety of ways, in some little ways and some more significant ways. There's a small way I encountered this just a few weeks ago. Now, many of you know that we're still living on the south side of Edmonton, and I have a fairly long commute back and forth each day. 
And so after driving the same road day after day after day, it can become rather familiar. If you've ever driven the highways for work, you know what I'm talking about, where you sort of know the road, and it feels like you've lost time because you're just driving the same day, same road every day. And you quit paying attention to certain things, like scenery, off-ramps that you don't use, road signs, speed limits at times, right? I don't know where this is going. So a, a few months ago, I got a series of photo radar tickets in the mail. Now, the first one you feel bad about, and you're like, ah, photo radar, right? And then the next one you're like, oh, I should have known better. And the next one you're like, okay, this is starting to add up. And, but the fourth one, that one really makes a difference <laughs> upon you. So, so I stopped speeding. <laughs> I started paying attention again. But why? Why did I stop speaking? Why did I start paying attention again? Because I felt bad? Because I had remorse over the outcome of my choices? Or did I stop speeding because of conviction? I came to the point to realize, you know what? When I speed, I'm breaking the law. And if I'm breaking the law, then that's wrong. And so I should stop speeding because I'm breaking the law. Is that why I stopped doing it? Because I had a change of heart? No. No. I, I should have. I'm just going to be honest with you. I stopped speeding because of remorse. I still have work to do on this one. I need to go from remorse to repentance on this one still. I stopped speeding, though, because of remorse. Now, that, that's a smaller thing, speeding tickets. Not irrelevant, but smaller. But why don't we go out and rob banks? Because we get caught or because we know what's wrong? Why don't we go out and do something even, even worse? Maybe Why don't we go out and murder people because we'd be afraid to get caught or feel bad? We would feel bad, but is that why we don't do it? Or do we not do it because in our minds we already know it's a violation of a law that we take seriously? Well, how much more so the laws of God? How much more so the laws of God that might seem small don't lie, don't gossip, don't cheat, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't look at that? Do we not do those things because of remorse or because we believe that God's law is better? And that is the reason we should avoid these things. You see, I think it's a critical question for us as followers of Christ. Because I believe this is where a lot of people get tripped up. Where we seek to avoid certain sins because we know we're going to feel bad. We seek to avoid certain things because I know if I do it again, I'm going to feel shame and guilt and I'm going to be remorseful again. But if that is the limit... And the reason why we avoid certain sins, we are still stuck on that treadmill of sin, remorse, confess. Sin, remorse, confess. Sin, remorse, confess. And it goes on and on and on. And we know we're doing damage to ourselves. But we're also doing damage to others around us. And we're doing damage to our relationship with God as we build these barriers that keep us from knowing him. But how much different would it be if we decided to not engage in certain things anymore? Because, not because of remorse, but because we had a change of mind that said, God said thou shalt not. And so I won't. Because life is better with God than without God. Because I've come to a change of mind where God's ways are better than my ways. God's ways are higher than my ways. You see, if we operate on remorse only, we are stuck on that treadmill. But if we have this change of mind, which leads to a change of heart, it leads to a change of actions, and we can start to find freedom. Because the freedom is not found in ourselves, it is found in God. And he is the one who gives us that freedom. That is the godly sorrow that Paul is talking about in this passage. 
It's not a sorrow that's meant to cause harm to us, but it's meant to reveal areas in our lives that are in rebellion against God in order that the remorse we feel would lead to a reorientation of thinking so that we would begin to view our lives the way God does. And we would therefore then begin to make changes accordingly. See, Peter felt terrible about his betrayal. He felt terrible enough that he ran to Jesus to admit that he was wrong. He needed to admit and to affirm that, that in his mind and in his heart and in his actions, he needed to get back in line with God's plan, with God's will. But I'm going to add this to the situation as well. It's not our remorse nor our repentance that brings freedom and forgiveness. You see, what that does, when we get from remorse to repentance, when we get to that point, that change of heart, that's not just a feeling, it's actually a change of heart. When we get to that point, that's not what gives us freedom. That's what creates the heart condition so that we can be forgiven. That's what creates the heart condition that allows us to experience the grace of God. Remember Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved. Through your faith through that heart condition that you've created in yourself that allows you to have faith in the one who can forgive. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of yourself. It is a gift that comes from God, not by works so that we can't look to ourselves and think we did any of it. It is a gift of God so that we can't boast about it. You see, remorse can get you to repentance, but only repentance can get you to grace. And grace is this unmerited favor of God. This unmerited favor, meaning we didn't earn it and we don't deserve it, but we get it. Then in spite of what we've done, that even though we may have denied Christ, that instead of giving us what we deserve because of that fact that we betrayed a holy God, that when we open up our lives to him, he doesn't give us what we deserve, but instead he blesses us. He extends kindness to us, and he extends mercy to us. You could say that grace is God giving the greatest treasure when you least deserve it. It's God's grace. Now what's our part in this? Our part is to respond to the godly sorrow in our lives. And then by running towards God, not from God. Now, often this, this godly sorrow and this, this need to run towards him can be referred to as a conviction. We hear that word conviction at times. And the convicting work is the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And, and Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would come and that he would convict the world about sin and about righteousness and about judgment. Now, I'm not talking here about having a guilty conscience. I'm not talking about feeling shame. These things are synonymous with remorse, with those feelings. I'm not even talking about the sense of trepidation over divine punishment. Those are natural feelings. Those are natural expressions that everyone is going to have, but they do not necessarily lead to repentance. When I talk about conviction, what I'm talking about here is the Holy Spirit's work in a person's life that convinces them, that confronts them, that proves to them the truth about who God is and about his ways versus our ways. See, the Holy Spirit acts as this prosecuting attorney who exposes the evil and exposes our need for a Savior. And once we experience that 
and choose to move towards it, that causes a change in our thinking, which changes our hearts, which changes our actions as we continue to follow Jesus, to become more and more like him. There's stories that we'll find in our own lives of people we know, people in celebrities, media, sports teams within churches that can share testimonies of what this has looked like in their life. A couple years ago, I came across a story that's a little old from a few decades ago, but I think it so beautifully just encapsulates what this looks like. And it was about a well-known radio host and comedian who a few decades ago, some of you might have heard his name before, Stuart Hamlin, who was very, very popular in Hollywood, partially for his comedy and for his work on the radio, but also he was popular and well-known for his drinking, his partying, and his womanizing. But then one day, a young preacher came to town. A young preacher by the name of Billy Graham came to town and was doing some tent revival meetings. And so Hamlin thought it would be good to have him on his radio show to poke fun at him. And so he invited him to his radio show and, sure enough, poked some fun at him on the radio. But then he thought, you know, i got to gather more material because I can run with this for a little bit. So he actually went to the meeting. And during the meeting, Billy Graham stood on the platform and said, there is a man here who is a big fake. Pretty general statement. There could have been probably a lot of guys there that night who were a big fake. But, but Hamlin heard that and was convinced that he was talking about him. You could call this a conviction. The work of the Holy Spirit convicting him of something. Or, but he, he, whatever it was, he pushed it away. He pushed it aside. But those words continued to haunt him. They would not leave him. To the point where a couple of nights later, in a bit of a drunken stupor, he went to Billy Graham's hotel room at 2 in the morning, banged on the door, and demanded that the preacher pray for him. Pray for me that I would be relieved from this conviction. To which Billy Graham said, that's between you and, not, you and God. I'm not getting in the middle of that. But he invited him in. And they talked for three hours until Hamlin dropped to his knees and repented of his sins. And the change in his life was instant where he, he stopped drunkenness. He stopped chasing after women. He stopped everything he used to consider fun. But then he also began to lose favor in Hollywood. And suddenly he lost his job at the radio station. And hard times started to set upon him as his life that it used to be was starting to slide downhill. And then a friend came by one night, a friend by the name of John Wayne. I wish I had a good John Wayne accent right now. And he said, Pilgrim? No, he didn't. He didn't say that. <laughs> I'd do it if I had one. But he said, you know, Hamlin, all this trouble started with religion. Are you sure it's worth it? To which he just instantly said, yes, it's worth it. And it's no big secret what God can do. And after he said that phrase, they both thought, you know, that's kind of a catchy phrase. You should, you should write a song about that. He was a bit of a songwriter at the same time, too. And he did. He wrote a song called, It's No Big Secret What God Can Do, which became a southern country gospel hit that was recorded by guys like Jim Reeves and Elvis Presley and Willie Nelson and dozens of others throughout the decades. Now, this might be a story from a generation or so ago, but the timeless words of that song say that what he has done for others, he'll do for you. With arms wide open, he'll welcome you. If you will press beyond the feelings of remorse to the change of heart of repentance, with arms wide open, he will welcome you. God will do for you what he has done for others throughout time. He will extend his mercy and he will extend his grace to you that you may then be able to walk in fellowship with him again and reveal the good news of his love in your own life and the life of those who 
you encounter. Conviction's not easy. Conviction is very rarely enjoyable. But, but I hope we can be thankful for it. Because without conviction, really, there would be no salvation. Because we wouldn't see these areas of our lives that need to be confessed, and we wouldn't see the need for a Savior in our own lives. And so as we begin to close this time, I want to give you the opportunity to reflect upon your own life. To give you an opportunity to reflect upon perhaps a conviction that you're feeling here today or that you've been wrestling with over the last days, weeks, or months. Perhaps you've heard that small voice, that, that ache in your soul when somebody talks about the good news of Jesus Christ. You know what that feels like. Perhaps you've felt the remorse of your sins, but you've never accepted the freedom that comes from a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Perhaps you have that relationship with Christ, but there's also this nagging conviction that these attitudes and these actions that you're involved with are wrong. And you know you're stuck on that treadmill. You're stuck in that cycle of sin, remorse, confess. Sin, remorse, confess. Over and over again. And you don't know why you can't break free. You know it is damaging yourself. You know it is damaging those around you. You know it is building a barrier between you and God that needs to be torn down. You have a choice. You can either try to push it away again. You can try and scramble to find relief, to justify, to minimize these convictions. You can turn to the things of this world that promise they will salve the bad feelings that plague your heart. You can turn to the indulgences, to the various escapes that the world offers. You can turn to religious systems and the wisdom of man, but at the end of the day, all of those will still leave you holding the bag. At best, it's a band-aid upon the wound. Or there's another option. The other option is you can run to Jesus. You can run to him signifying that you know he has something to offer that is not found in the world. Signifying that you believe life with him is better than life without him. That he doesn't just offer better wisdom or better words to live by, but that he offers grace and mercy that is found in no one but him. And it was made possible because of Jesus' sacrifice upon the cross, where he gave his life to pay the price for that sin that plagues the root of what causes that shame, that guilt, and that remorse, he has died for and he has dealt with. All of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of God's commands and of his will for our lives. But if we will come to see his will and his laws as more important than a speeding ticket, it should bother us that we violated those things. It should deeply grieve us that we have violated those things. And that grief, that remorse should lead us towards repentance, not towards actions or more words and more penance. Because that can't wipe the slate clean. Only the blood of Jesus Christ can wipe that slate clean. And it's offered to all of us. The Bible says that we need to repent. That we need to turn to God. And if we will, that our sins will be wiped out in times of refreshing will come back to us. What a great promise. So if you're here today and don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, I invite you to listen to that conviction, that voice, and to pray with me. Or perhaps you know that there's an area in your life where you need to get right with God. Where you know the remorse, you've tried that. But the time has come to actually admit that it's not just bad, it's wrong. And to press in to that change of heart. 
I invite you to pray with me as well. As the worship team comes up, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, for those of us who are gathered here today who do not yet have a personal relationship with you, they have heard your spirit speak in their lives, Lord. They know the truth, but there is something that is keeping them from accepting it for themselves. God, we, we pray that in this moment right now, that they would just take that step of faith. Lord, that they would experience your grace for the first time. And if that is you that is here, you can pray along with me. That Say, Lord Jesus, I know that I have sinned. I know the remorse. I know the guilt and the shame. Jesus, I believe that you died upon the cross, that I could be free from all of that. God, I need your grace. I need your mercy. I give you my life. And I can walk with you in this life and the next. Lord, there are also those here who are just plagued with sin. Who, who, who are stuck in, in one big one they just can't break free from. Or perhaps it's just this pattern of, of looking to self. God, I pray that the Spirit would be upon them as well to convict them of that, Lord. That, that the remorse would turn to repentance. The repentance would lead to grace. And that we would feel that freedom. And that freedom would just well up in our hearts. God, in this moment of silence, I just pray that each of us would do some business with you right now to confess those things, not just confess the remorse, but confess that it is wrong and a change of heart is required. Lord, for those of us that are praying these prayers, claim that promise that says that whom the Son has set free is free indeed. And Lord, that we can stand and praise and proclaim the goodness of your name because you have provided the way and the truth that leads us to the Father, that leads us to freedom, that can set the captive free, that can heal the wounds, that can repair the hearts, that can bring us to life eternal. That is amazing grace that we thank you for and we praise you for. In Jesus' holy.